Well, I'd like us to turn back uh, to John chapter 2. We're going to look at the section that we read, but uh, I'll read again verses 9 to 11. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is one of Jesus' most famous miracles. It's also his first, uh, as John tells us there uh, in verse 11. It's one that, that we, I'm sure, all know well, uh, and uh, maybe from childhood we can remember learning about Jesus turning water into wine. So a very famous miracle, a very well-known miracle. But I think it's also fair to say that it's also a miracle that is maybe a little bit hard to understand. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, you see him healing the blind, calming the storms, raising the dead. And, and all these miracles, they, have, they, have, they seem quite obvious because they're meeting clear and urgent needs. But turning water into wine, it's, it seems like a nice thing to do, but it's not always easy to see exactly why Jesus did it, or, or even to see why he chooses this miracle to be the very first sign that people will see. Well, what I hope we'll uh, discover tonight uh, is that this miracle is crucial for helping us to understand who Jesus is and why Jesus has come. And the title of the sermon tonight is, What Kind of Jesus Do You Believe In? What kind of Jesus do you believe in? But I'm not actually going to ask that question until the very end. But to help us find the answer, we're going to look at three crucial things that this passage reveals about Jesus. And we'll go through these three before we come back to our big question uh, in our conclusion. So, three things that this passage reveals about Jesus. Number one, Jesus will not humiliate you. Number two, Jesus will not submit to you. Number three, Jesus will not disappoint you. He will not humiliate you. He'll not submit to you. He'll not disappoint you. So let's think about these one by one. First of all, then, Jesus will not humiliate you. And uh, we can see this as we look uh, at verses 1 to 3 and onwards. In these verses, we discover that Jesus is at a wedding. His mother Mary is there. So too are some of the disciples who have begun to follow him. Uh, In those days, a wedding could last for several days. And it was a great time of joy and celebration It was also a very important social event for the family uh, and the community, as it still is today in our own culture. Um, It's still the case that a wedding day involves a lot of planning, and it's a day when you want everything to be just right. At this wedding, something was about to go very wrong. In verse 3, we're told that the wine ran out. Now, it's one of these things that to us it might not sound like that big a deal, but it's very important for us to recognise that running out of wine would have been a huge embarrassment 
uh, at this wedding, especially because at this time the the culture was very much shaped by by what we call an honour-shame mindset, an honour-shame culture. Today, as I'm sure you all know, it's usually the bride who does most of the planning and organising for the wedding. The groom's main responsibility is just to do what he's told. And, and, but that's very different to what it was like in New Testament times. In these days, um, the one who did all the planning and the organisation was the groom. It was his responsibility to get everything ready. And what that means is that if they ran out of something, it was his fault. And so although the wee statement at the start of verse 3, they'd run out of wine, it looks innocent enough, it would have actually brought huge public humiliation onto the groom and by extension onto his family because you have this honour-shame culture where if you do something um, inappropriate, it brings huge shame on you and onto your family. And that explains why Mary came to Jesus to say to him, they've run out of wine. She wants to tell him what's happened. Now, we don't have quite the same honour-shame culture today, but I'm sure we can still relate uh, to what this would be like. Um, imagine that you're the bridegroom and that you're planning your wedding and you've got one job. You've just got one job. You need to go and you need to confirm with the cabaret the date for the wedding. So let's say it was the 10th of June. That's your one job. Your fiancé is going to do everything else. And so you've got it all planned uh, you've chosen the menu, everything's set, it all looks good. The wedding day comes, service here in Shawbost, beautiful photos down uh, at the beach, everything going really well, um, and then you all head over to town, you turn up to the cabaret and they say, we weren't expecting you. You booked us for the 10th of July. Now, that would be... That would be awful. It would be very, very embarrassing. And it would be very embarrassing for the bridegroom, just as well if it did happen. It's after the ceremony, so his wife is now stuck with him. She can't back out. But it would be hugely embarrassing. I think it would make its way to head news or something like that, if something like that did happen. And it's helping us to see that in this context, the risk of humiliation is huge. And that's a very important thing for us to recognise if we're going to understand this miracle. In the midst of this potential embarrassment for the bridegroom, Jesus steps in and he prevents the bridegroom from being humiliated. And in doing so, I think we are learning a crucial lesson about Jesus. We are learning that he will not humiliate you. Now, when we talk about humiliation, I think that can really happen in two ways. One is our embarrassment about our own failures and weaknesses being exposed. The other is our fear of being associated with somebody else who's made a hash of things uh, or who's done something potentially embarrassing. This passage is making us think about the first of these, and that's really the important one. Um, Our fear of our own mistakes being exposed. Because the other sense of being humiliated, that's really to do with someone else's mistakes rather than... Uh, our own. Here in John 2, you've got, a one, you've got a young man and his mistake is about to cause massive embarrassment to himself, to his wife, to his family and to the whole community. 
And Jesus stops it from happening. And it's an amazing reminder that Jesus will not humiliate you. And that's especially important when we recognize that Jesus knows all about you. And he knows all about me. That's one of the big themes that's brought out in the early chapters of John's Gospel. If you go back to chapter 1, you see that Jesus knew Peter. And you see that Jesus knew Nathaniel. And you go on to chapter 4 and you see that Jesus knew the woman at the well. He knew all about uh, her story. And at the end of this chapter, if you scroll down to the end of chapter 2... Uh, you see it, uh, John makes it absolutely clear. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. If John is correct, if Jesus knows everything that's in us, think of everything that he could expose. Think of everything that Jesus could expose. I look at myself, I look at my life, I see so many stupid mistakes and for them to be exposed would mean total humiliation for me. Now we might think to ourselves, you know, well, well yes that's fine Thomas, but that kind of exposure isn't ever going to happen. But actually today I think it's the case that that this is probably more relevant and more likely than it has been at any other time in history because we're in a situation now today when social media effectively keeps a record, a digital record, of all your stupidity. When I was young, it was great. You, know, you could go off with your mates and you could do something stupid and the only people who knew about it were your friends who were just as stupid as you. But now, now... You can post something online or you can do something and someone might be filming you with a phone or you might send a message that you really shouldn't have sent and it's all recorded and it can all be exposed for the world to see. And you've actually seen this loads of times in the news. You see it when reporters have scoured through a celebrity's Twitter account or whatever and they've found something ridiculous that they posted when they were 13 years old and all this gets exposed and the person has to go on telly and they have to make this apology and they say that doesn't reflect the person that I am today and all that kind of stuff and in many ways I think we can say that our society I think actually takes pleasure in this sort of thing that's the kind of news that sells people love this kind of scoop that somebody oh they actually did this and this has been discovered and we can expose it all when something shocking about somebody is discovered there's this kind of sick delight in the media at, at exposing it and highlighting it and causing as much humiliation as possible. Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, he does the complete opposite. He knows everything about you and about me Every stupid statement, every embarrassing mistake, every childish regret, he knows it all. But the amazing thing is that he has not come to expose it. He has come to cover it. And here in this passage, instead of being humiliated, 
The bridegroom was actually honoured because of what Jesus has done. The master of the feast said, everyone usually serves the good wine first and they keep the rubbish wine till the end, but you've kept the good wine until now. And so instead of being exposed to the community as, as a disorganised fool, this bridegroom's reputation now is one of greatness. He's the one who's brought the best wine of all to the end of his feast. All of that is an amazing glimpse of what Jesus has come to do. He is not going to humiliate you. Second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus will not submit to you. Jesus won't submit to you. This is where we come to the interesting conversation that takes place between Jesus and Mary, his mother, in verses 3 to 5. Mary comes to Jesus and tells him that they've run out of wine. Now, that could, have, that could imply that she was in some ways quite involved in the preparations of the, of the wedding. She might have been kind of had a, a, an inside awareness of what was going on. Maybe the bridegroom was a relative of hers. We don't know for sure, but it's perfectly plausible. Um, she comes to Jesus, she says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus gives her a fascinating and a slightly surprising reply. The phrase he uses is in verse 4, where it says in, in uh, the ESV, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now that phrase, uh, woman, what does this have to do with me? Literally, that phrase says, what to me and to you, woman? That's the literal translation. And that exact same phrase appears elsewhere in the Gospels. It appears in Mark 5 and in Luke 8. And it's said by the man who's possessed by a legion of demons when he meets Jesus and he says to him, what do you have to do with me? Now, <coughs> this is a little bit of a confrontational sounding comment. And because of that, here in John 2, there's a, a temptation to try and soften the language a wee bit, to soften the tone. So some translations add the word dear. So it's like dear woman. What does this have to do with me uh, to make it all sound a little bit more polite? The, kind of something like, dear woman, wh why would you want to ask me about this? And maybe it's the case that Jesus was distracted and disengaged and maybe he was wondering why his mother was asking him about the wine. Some people think that. Others though, others have suggested that the phrase that Jesus uses is quite blunt and quite firm. And we should interpret it that way. That he says, what is this to do with me, woman? And I, I'm inclined to agree with them. And it's something that you can all decide for yourselves. You can chat about it when you get home. Was Jesus rebuking his mother when he said those words? And I'm inclined to think that he was. Especially because of what he says next. He says, my hour has not yet come. And that definitely implies that there was something amiss in Mary's mindset. I think it's making it clear. I think Jesus is making it clear to his mother that it's not up to her to decide when or how Jesus reveals himself. And I think that there's an interesting contrast between verse 3 and verse 5. In verse 3, it's as though Mary wants Jesus to listen to her. She's coming to almost tell him what to do. 
But by verse 5, she realizes actually everybody has to listen to him. One commentator I read said, In verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. And I think that's a very good summary of what happens between Mary and Jesus here. However you understand that that phrase, uh, what does this uh, have to do with me? It's clear from what Jesus says about his hour not coming that his mission is going to be undertaken in his own terms. Or perhaps even more accurately, it's going to be undertaken on God the Father's terms, not on Mary, his mother's terms. And that theme comes up again and again as you go through John's Gospel. As you read through the first half of John, several times you'll see Jesus uh, um, use the phrase that's something along the lines of, my hour has not yet come. And then only later, when he approaches the cross, does he start saying, my hour has arrived. All of this is teaching us an incredibly important lesson that every single one of us needs to recognize and think about. It is teaching us that Jesus will not submit to you. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's, that sounds a bit off-putting. You kind of think, well, charming. He's not going to submit to me. He's not going to listen to me. Um, you know, it's easy to think like that. Well, I'm not saying that he won't listen to you. Jesus did listen to Mary, but he made it very clear that he was the one in charge of what's happening. Jesus will always listen to you whenever you talk to him, but he will not submit to you and he won't do everything on your terms. And I want you to think about the fact that that is not off-putting. It's actually absolutely amazing. I, um, any of you who know me will know that I'm not a particularly good cook. I'm not very good at cooking, but I am very good at interfering. And so over the years, I've often waltzed into the kitchen when Yuna, my wife, is cooking. And I've said, oh, how are we doing this? Or, oh, what are you doing there? And, oh, what's this? Oh, why didn't you do this, that, or the next thing? And Yuna very politely listens and then completely ignores what I say. Um, why does she ignore me? Well, because she's the one who knows what she's doing. And I'm not. She knows how to produce something amazing. And my terms are only going to make things worse. And it's so easy for us to be exactly the same with Jesus. We come to him and we want things our way. We want things according to our timing. We want things on our terms. And that happens to everyone here. It happens to people who are not yet Christians um, or who are not sure if they're Christians. And it happens to people who are Christians. If you're not yet a Christian or if you're not sure uh, if you are a Christian yet, you might find yourself saying things like, well, I, I do want to become a Christian, but I'll wait until I'm older. Or I will wait until I've got my life a little bit more sorted. I'll, I'll come to church, but I'm, I'm not going to profess faith. Um, I'm not going to go to the prayer meeting. I'm not going to pray out loud. I'm not going to give a tenth of what I earn. Um, I'm not going to come to church if they change things or do things in a way that I don't like. 
I'm not going to do anything that makes people talk about me. Um, we can all think like that. Whether we're Christians or not Tudor for Christians, um, we can find ourselves thinking, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it this way, but not this way. I'll accept that. I'll reject that. We all do it. We all want Jesus to conform to our expectations. We all want him to submit to our terms. And here we're being taught that Jesus is not going to do it. He's not going to do it. And no wonder he's not going to do it. You go back one chapter and you read the beginning of John chapter 1. You discover that he is the one who made us. He's the one who has absolute authority. He's the eternal word. He's God the Son. He's the one through whom everything was made. And we want to tell him what to do. But there's an even more wonderful reason why Jesus won't submit to you. The reason Jesus won't submit to you is because he wants to give you more than you have ever dreamt of. Now I want you to think about that. The minute we impose our terms on Jesus, the minute we say to Jesus, you know, yes, I want to follow you, but it has to look like this, then the minute we do that, it means that the best that he can give us is the best that we can come up with. The most that he can give us is the best that we can come up with. If we limit him to our terms, our expectations, the most he can give us is the best that we can come up with. And Jesus wants to give you way, way more than that. He wants to give you far more than you could even ask or think. And that brings us to our third point. Jesus will not disappoint you. So he'll not humiliate you, he'll not submit to you, and he will not disappoint you. Verses 6 to 11 give us a wonderful account of what happened next. Jesus instructs the servants to fill the purification jars with water. When the water's drawn out, they discover that it has become wine. And it's not just wine, it is amazing wine. Now here, Jesus isn't just making sure that the bridegroom avoids humiliation. He's also revealing something about who he is. As verse 11 tells us, this miracle is revealing his glory. So what is Jesus telling us here? Well, here Jesus is pointing us to the joy of the messianic age. The Jews have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come. They've been longing for his appearance for centuries, that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed prophet, priest and king would come. And at the end of chapter 1, the disciples are realising just who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. And the miracle at the start of chapter 2 is telling us that the fact that the Messiah has come is a massive reason to celebrate. Wine is the drink of joy. 
celebration and thanksgiving. Now, we might find it hard to think in those terms, especially because today wine is a lot stronger than it would have been in those days. And along with many other strong drinks, it's caused havoc in many, many people's lives, in our own communities uh, and throughout the world. But in Scripture, those negative connotations with alcohol are not prominent at all. They're there in places, but they're not prominent. By far the great emphasis in Scripture is that wine means celebration. And no wonder they're going to celebrate because Jesus the Messiah has come. The news that the Jews had waited for and longed for has finally come. Now there's hope of salvation. Now God's kingdom is going to be established. Now all of God's covenant promises are going to be fulfilled. Now is the time to rejoice. But that's not all. Because this is a sign And a sign is pointing towards something else. And all of this is pointing forwards. It's pointing towards the great consummation of God's kingdom. It's pointing to the amazing future that God is preparing for all his people. And at the heart of all that, at the heart of God's great plan of salvation, is joy and celebration. Joy that Jesus has come. Joy that God has not abandoned us. Joy that Jesus is going to put everything right. Joy that in him we can be saved and restored forever. And that joy is symbolized in this wine in John chapter 2. And that happens in two ways. One is quantity. Jesus makes tons of wine. 150 liters, that's 150 bottles. That's a lot of wine. And two is quality. This wine is amazing. It's all pointing us to the lavish, abundant joy that we can all experience if we follow Jesus. And all of that is teaching you that Jesus is not going to disappoint you. And this is so crucial because it's so easy. And I am Sure, that there's probably people in here who, when they think of Jesus, they think that Jesus and following Jesus is important, but it's a bit dull. It's so easy to think like that. Well, yes, this is really important, but it's a bit rubbish. But it is important, so I should probably do it. So, you know, if you follow Jesus, well, yes, it's important because we're going to avoid hell. And it's, it's important that you must do that, but... You've got to just accept that it's going to stifle your life and it's going to take away your joy and it's going to spoil the stuff that you enjoy. And that's nearly always the thinking behind anybody who says, yes, I I want to be a Christian one day, but not yet, because life will be more rubbish then than it is now. And it's utter nonsense. It's total rubbish to think like that. It's terrible theology to think like that. It's totally unbiblical to think like that because Jesus is the giver of abundant, lavish, indescribable joy. And we get glimpses of that now and we look forward with so much excitement to the future when we will know that joy in all of its abundance. If you think 
that following Jesus is dull and depressing, then you've got to study this passage until you change the way you think. And if any of us as Christians have made following Jesus look like a disappointment, then we need to study this passage until we repent. The first thing that John wants you to see Jesus do in this gospel, the first sign that he records, is the moment when Jesus brought amazing joy and celebration to the lives of everybody who was at this wedding. And this is where we see an amazing, amazing contrast with something that, that appears in chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, um, and you see verse 38, it says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to, him, said to them, what are you seeking? This is two of the uh, disciples of John the Baptist who'd followed Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he turned, said to them, what are you seeking? Those four words, what are you seeking? That's the first thing that Jesus is recorded as saying in this gospel. So the first thing that John wants you to to, to hear Jesus say is that question, what are you seeking? And then here we see the first thing that Jesus gives. He gives amazing wine. And I think it's so important to put those two things together because everybody in here and everybody out there in your community, we are seeking the thing that's going to give us joy we're seeking something that we can delight in, something that will make us happy, something that will make us feel special, something that will give us reason to celebrate. Jesus is telling us, and he's telling every other joy seeker in the world, that that's exactly what he's come to give you. That's exactly what he offers in the gospel. He's not going to disappoint you. But maybe that's not what you're worried Maybe you don't worry that Jesus will disappoint you. Maybe your worry is that you will disappoint him. Well, if that's you, then you need to think about the jars that are mentioned uh, in this passage. Uh, it describes the jars, that's what needs to get filled with water. You see it in verse 6 and 7. These jars were for purification. And that was part of the huge emphasis in the Jewish religious practices on cleanliness and on purity. That means that those jars were a reminder to everyone that they're dirty. They're sitting over there, these jars for cleansing, for purification, they're a reminder that you're dirty. Now maybe you wouldn't use those exact words, but maybe that's exactly how you feel before Jesus. Like you're not good enough, you're not pure enough, you're stained by all your mistakes and failings. Purification jars say to you, I'm dirty. But in this miracle, what comes from them is wine. And wine says, I am happy. That's exactly what Jesus does. He takes away our dirtiness and he replaces it with eternal happiness. It's all teaching us that Jesus will never disappoint you. All of that brings us back to the question that we raised at the start. 
What kind of Jesus do you believe in? And I want you to really think about this question. Do you believe in a harsh, intimidating Jesus that you need to impress? So do you think that you need to sort out all your weaknesses before you can be of any use to him? Do you think that you're always just one step away from being a massive failure in Jesus' eyes? Do you think that on the whole, he's pretty disappointed with you and he's ready to expose your failures just like the world around us would? That is not Jesus. Jesus will never humiliate you. Do you believe in a Jesus who will submit to you? Do you want things on your own terms? Do you want to tell him how your life should or shouldn't work out or how your family's life should or should not work out? Do you want to give him certain parts of your life but not others? Do you want a Jesus that you can control? That's not Jesus. He's not going to submit to you. Do you believe in a Jesus that will disappoint you? Do you think that he'll stifle your joy, spoil your fun, restrict your life? That is not Jesus. He will never, ever disappoint you. But you might be saying to yourself, well, how do you know? Well, the reason we know is because of everything that John's Gospel is leading towards. We know all this because of what Jesus did on the cross. And what I want you to see as we close is that on the cross, Jesus covers our shame by exposing himself to total humiliation. Jesus gains his authority by becoming a servant, submitting himself to the Father's will all the way to the point of death. And Jesus pours out joy in abundance now, all because he was engulfed by grief as he died in our place. And he did it because he is the ultimate bridegroom, He's the ultimate provider. He is the ultimate giver of joy. Jesus is utterly amazing. What kind of Jesus do you believe in? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you will not humiliate us. We thank you that you will not submit to us. We thank you that you will never disappoint us. And we bow down and worship you as our amazing Saviour, our Lord, our King, our God. Amen.